Let's hear the word of God. Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshipping of angels, intruding into those things which you have not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding the head from which all the body by joints and bands have nourishment ministered, and knit together increase with the increase of God. Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are you subject to ordinances? Touch not, taste not, handle not, which all are to perish with the using after the commandments and doctrines of men, which things have indeed a show of wisdom and will worship and humility and neglecting of the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. Now this morning, we are continuing with our series of expository sermons in the book of Colossians. And today my text is taken from Colossians and chapter 2 and verse 20 right through to verse 23. For those online, the words will come up on the screen. I'll not trouble you reading the text once again. Now let's ask this question. What were the false teachers doing and teaching in the church at Colossae? Well, one thing, according to the Apostle Paul, that they were not doing was this. They were not holding the head. It's not what he said in verse 19. And not holding the head from which all the body by joints and bands, having nourishment ministered and knit together, increased with the increase of God. In other words, here's a statement of fact. They were not holding the true head of the church. They were holding a false head. They were holding the wrong head of the church. And this was true in regards to his identity. They didn't know who the head was. In regard to his supremacy, that he stands supreme over every other pretender. Uh, they, they, they didn't know anything about his sufficiency, what it meant to be in him and joined in union with him. They didn't know anything about his authority. Now today we're moving on because here's another truth that these false teachers were guilty of. They were not only guilty of not holding the head, but they were also guilty of not honoring the body of Christ, the true church. They were not helping the church with their teaching. In fact, it was the opposite. They were harming the church by their teaching. Here's a statement of utter falsehood. And you can read Colossians chapter 2, verses 20 to 23, and you can write that beside it, a statement of utter falsehood. Because in this paragraph, the apostle Paul totally demolishes and denounces the falsehood of the false teaching and their program for living out the Christian life. Here's how not to live a holy life. Here's how not to live a life of godliness. Here's how not to live out the Christian life. I've asked myself in study, where did they get these ideas from? Ultimately from the devil, the angel of light. But we could ask this question. Was their contact with so-called 
angelic creatures? Did they receive from them some word of knowledge and some word of vision? And that became the basis for their teaching, that every Christian must adhere to a strict ascetic life. In other words, a rules-based religion. You see, an ascetic life was imposed. It was mandated for in order for the Colossians to be truly saved. You need to do these things if you want to live a holy life, if you want to live a life of godliness. Basically, they were saying, if you follow our rules, you can achieve victory over the flesh. You can obtain a life of holiness and godliness. So we asked them the question, well, did an angel show you this vision? Let me ask another question. What is the biggest problem in the world today? What's the oldest problem in the world? Or the oldest thing in the world, young people, boys and girls? Here's the answer. Sin. The problem of continuing sinful desires. Has this problem of continuing sinful desires not plagued the human race from the beginning of time? Does it not take us back to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden? It does. And every one of us wrestles with indwelling sin. Every one of us, even in Christ, are tempted to sin and tempted to do wrong. We all think bad thoughts. We all say the wrong things. We all do things that are wrong. So here's a very practical question now. I, I, I trust you're with me. I trust you're listening. How can we keep the old man? Or how can we keep the flesh? Or how can we keep inward remaining sin in check? How do we do that? Now listen to the utterly false answer of the false teacher. Look at chapter 2 and verse 23. And neglecting of the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. Here's an utterly false answer. You see, the false teachers taught, in order to gain a life of victory, a life of holiness and godliness, treat the body harshly. And if you treat the body harshly, this will be an honest attempt to gain mastery over the body. So they had a set of rules, how you dressed. A set of rules and what you ate. Don't eat meat. Meat's bad. What you drink. Even water was restricted. Oil was forbidden. Who you have contact with. You see, it even impacted on marriage. Do you know that they forbid marriage? Over there in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 3, it says, forbidding to marry and commanding, notice the word, to abstain from meats, which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them that believe and know the truth. Let, let me illustrate. You've heard of Hinduism. The false leader of Hinduism was Gandhi. And he stopped being intimate with his wife, even though he was married, to control his fleshly urges. He slept naked in bed with other beautiful young women who were not his wife, but claimed they never touched him. Nobody ever thought about asking him about his thoughts or his feelings or his emotions. There's another guy way back in centuries ago called Oregon. He was a mystic. He took the concept of being a eunuch that is, never marrying a woman. He took it so seriously, he, he castrated himself. 
Do you know that to this day we have monks and nuns in nunneries and uh, monasteries? They, they sleep in wooden boards, not on a mattress. They, they wear hairy shirts to make them itchy. They expose themselves to the extreme cold. They expose themselves to the extreme heat. They, they starve themselves. They walk barefoot up and down roads and mountains. They do not wash for weeks. They fast. They remain celibate. They, they have taken vows of chastity and poverty and celibacy. Why? Let's ask the question, why do this? Well, it's an attempt at being godly. It's, it's our attempt to be holy. It's our attempt to be good in the hope that we'll find favor with God, in the hope that we'll be accepted by him. Did you ever hear of a man called Simon Stylitz? Or Simon the Stylet? AD 390 to 495 AD. He lived on top of a pillar for 37 years. Imagine that. And he had a platform in the pillow, pillar, three foot by three foot. And it was located near Aleppo in Syria. You can go there to this day. Don't think the pillar's still there. And Simon the Stylite, he ate one meal per week. Imagine that. And he had a chain around his neck. And he prayed, bent over so that his head touched his feet. The pillar was 60 feet off the ground and thousands flocked to see him. What religion is this? This is a holy man of God. This is a wonderful Christian. He's a real Christian. You lot, you lot that touch and taste and handle material things, you're not real Christians. You see, here's the idea way back then of living what I call an ascetic kind of life a, a rules-based religion, a, a, a monastic life. And here's the interesting point. It still appeals to this day. In 1980, there was an article written by Christianity Today, penned by the late John Stott. John Stott was an Anglican. He was an evangelical, not saying the man wasn't saved. But he called for a return to the vows of chastity, poverty, and celibacy. He said if he had to relive his life again from the start, he would establish an evangelical monastic order. Now that idea is horrible. That idea is unbiblical. In fact, asceticism is totally sinful and totally harmful to the true church. It is not a gospel remedy against fleshly indulgence. It promotes sinful pride. It bypasses Christ. And it does immense harm. But you say to me, but the church will go to the free Presbyterian church is infected by worldliness. And it is. And we even have some who want to move away from our distinctives of head covering and the authorized version and a... And, uh, 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 abstinence policy to do with alcohol and questions on divorce and so on and so forth. There's sinful pride. There's carnality. There's sin. But what's the answer? 
And I want to tell you the utterly false answer is a rules-based withdrawal from the world in order to be holy, in order to be godly. And if Colossians chapter 2 verses 20 to 23 teaches me anything, it's this, and I wrote it down when I studied it. Godliness is not achieved by living an ascetic life. The false teachers at Colossae had imposed a set of rules in the church. They told them, if you keep these rules, you will have victory over the flesh, over the body, over indwelling sin. Look at chapter 2, verse 23. Which things have indeed a show of wisdom in will worship and humility? That's what Paul says about them. These self-imposed rituals, this homemade piety, it has a show of wisdom all about it and will worship and humility, but you're neglecting the body. And neglecting the body will never cure the soul because true holiness, true sanctification is not achieved by neglecting the body or living an ascetic kind of life. True godliness and holiness is rooted in being in union with Jesus Christ by our identification with him. Look at chapter 2, verse 20. Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why as though living in the world are you subject to ordinances? Now, the word if, it's not about doubt. It's about certainty. It's inviting you to consider whether or not you're in Christ, whether you've received him as Lord and Savior. So I ask, are you in Christ? Have you received him as Lord and Savior? But as many as received him, them give you power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe in his name. But when Christ died on the cross, if you're in Christ, you died with him. When Christ was buried in the tomb, you were buried in him and with him. When Christ rose again from the dead, you rose again in him and with him. And if we are in Christ, and we need to ponder the full implications of such a glorious reality, but if you died with Christ from the rudiments of the world, then why are you living in the world subject to a rules-based religion? Why are you subject to the ordinances of men? Look at chapter 3, verse 1. If ye then be risen with Christ, here's the turn from the negative to the positive. Seek those things which are above, for Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Focus on this. Focus on the fact that you're in Christ. You, you died with him at Calvary. You're now alive in him. Focus on your oneness. Focus on your identification with Christ. Remember, he's the head of the body. And you are his body that he bled and died for and redeemed by his precious blood. He's saying to them, remember you died in him. Remember you were buried in him. Remember you rose again in him. Therefore you're dead to sin. Therefore you're dead to the condemnation of the law. Therefore you're dead to falsehood. You're dead to heresy. Because it doesn't belong to Christ. It's not holding the head. It's, it's harming the body. It's not helping the body. And those who have succumbed to false teaching, who believed it, who accepted it, who embraced it, have acted on misinformation, have acted on an unfounded lie. You see, in Colossians 2, 20 through to 22, where you've got the question mark at the end there of verse 22, very important, it's one whole rhetorical question. 
And, and I'll summarize it this way. If you have really died with Christ and were raised up with him, why are you going back to a rules-based religion? Why are you living a life subject to man-made ordinances? It's utterly false. Because godliness, holiness, the Christian life, sanctification is not achieved by or through this evil of asceticism. Then let me tell you something else. Not only is there an utterly false answer here, but there's an utterly false analysis. I want you to think of these words and neglecting of the body. He says in verse 21, touch not, taste not, handle not. If I ask the question this morning, what is asceticism? Here's the answer. Having a strict and simple way of living that avoids physical pleasure. Here's another answer from the Webster Dictionary. Severe self-discipline and abstention from all forms of indulgence for religious reasons. But here's the answer, or the question. Is asceticism not taught in the Bible? And the answer is no. It's a lie. It's a horrible lie to teach that it's taught in the Bible. Now, the Bible does teach a life of self-denial. There is a life of biblical self-denial, biblical self-discipline, but it's nothing to do with asceticism. Now, let me tell you why. Here's the analysis. Asceticism teaches and believes that the body is sinful and evil. Therefore, you must punish the body. The body must be suppressed. The body is evil. So we must treat the body badly. Therefore, we must deny the body its legitimate needs. Marriage, foods, bodily comforts. Don't sleep in a mattress, sleep in a board, sleep in a stone bed. Make the body suffer. Here's the way to deal with the corrupt nature. Deal harshly with the body. Literally, help to conquer sin by being horrible to your body. You see, it's all ascetic. And all asceticism starts here with this utter false analysis that the body is sinful, that the body is evil, that the body must be punished. They make no distinction between the physical body and the sinful nature within the body and the struggle with inbred sin. The body is sinful. That's their analysis. The body is evil. The body, therefore, must be punished. So when they talk about neglecting the body, that's the reason why. Because the body is evil and must be punished. Asceticism sees the body as evil, sinful, that must be totally suppressed. Asceticism submits the body and subjects it to their human will or the human will of man. Asceticism sees all material things as evil to be avoided, including meat and drink. Asceticism says all joyful pleasures, they're sinful and to be avoided. So if you have joyful pleasure driving your fancy car up and down the road, then you are to sell your car. That's the idea. Or if you enjoy a lovely steak dinner in a restaurant, or whatever your favorite food is, going down to McDonald's, well, you'll stop going to McDonald's because that's a joyful pleasure and you have to stop doing that. That's what they're teaching. And it all stems from their fleshly mind. It all stems from their will worship. 
It all stems from their puffed up mind. And it does seem to promote a life of holiness. Think of Simon Stiletis. A life of godliness. But it doesn't. It bypasses Christ. It promotes and teaches the commandments of men. It's full of puffed up pride. So not only is there another uh, false answer here. How to live a godly life. But there's also another false analysis. Now one final thing. There's a unique faithful announcement. You see, the Bible doesn't teach that the body itself is sinful. The body body is not bad in and of itself. The body is not corrupt. Now, the sinful nature is, but the body is not. The Bible doesn't teach it. Let me just give you a few references. Turn over there to Psalm 139, and we'll look with me at verse 14. Here's the psalmist David. He's thinking about his body. He's thinking about his life. The day of his birth, the day of his death. Psalm 139, verse 14. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. My substance was not hid from thee when I was made in secret and curiously wrought in the lower parts of the earth. Thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect, and in thy book all my members were written, which in continuous were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. Now, what does that mean? It means that God was superintending and watching over the formation of David's body when he was in his mother's womb. And God has a book, and the members of David's body were written in that book, the color of his eyes. The number of hairs in his head, the day of his birth, appointed by God, the length of his fingers, how tall or short he was, uh, how he was going to appear by certain physical features. We'd asked ourselves this morning, what kind of human being am I? What kind of human being are you? You're unique. Do you know that you're beautiful in the eyes of God? See, many have a low view of self. But once you say, well, I'm made in the image of God, then you're a marvel, you're a wonder. Like David, you have to say, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. And how wonderful it is, not just when you're a creature, but you're a new creature in Christ. For if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. All things have passed away and all things have become new. I want to tell you the body is not sinful. And over in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 4, we read, for every creature of God is good, and nothing to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving. Yes, the body's been weakened by the fall. Yes, the body can be the vehicle that gives expression to sin. But the mortal body, your mortal body, is good in itself. It is neutral. It is sacred. And if you're in Christ, your body's a temple of the Holy Ghost. Listen to these words in um, 1 Corinthians chapter Um, 6 and verse 19 What know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost Which is in you, which ye have of God And ye are not your own, for ye are bought with a price Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit Which are God's You're to glorify God in your body You're to take care of your body What you put on, you put on before the Lord You exercise control what you put into the body. And that's why we have a voluntary absence of alcohol because it it does damage and harm to the body. Do you know that your body is destined 
in Christ for immortality. A glorious immortality. Or a horrible immortality in hell. But your, your, your body's designed for that. The body is not to be looked upon as evil. Don't look upon your body as evil. Don't despise your body. You see, it's the old heresy of Gnosticism. Ancient Greeks, matter is evil. All matter is evil. Even the trees and plants, they're evil. If you want proof again that the Bible doesn't teach you to think of this. The Lord Jesus Christ took a real, true body of flesh and blood. He united that body to his essential deity. He had a real humanity. Doesn't the Bible talk about the fullness of the Godhead bodily that indwells Christ? He had a real, true body, even though he lived a, a sinless life. I would encourage you to enjoy God this morning. Enjoy his gifts. Remember, asceticism denies God has given these good things. It's a slur in the goodness of God. It's a, a fundamental mistake to teach that the body is evil and the bodily needs are bad. Remember, the body is but a vehicle of sin. It gives expression to sin. But the body in itself is not evil. And we need a right view of our body. We need a, a biblical view of the body. Now, very quickly, not only does the Bible prove that the body is good and created in the image of God and is fearfully and wonderfully made, but the Bible teaches and calls for a life of self-denial. Listen to these few verses. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27, Paul says, But I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I preach to others, I myself should be a castaway. And over there in 2 Timothy in chapter 2 and verse 3, we read these words, Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy chapter 4 and in the verse 7, But refuse profane and old wives' fables and exercise thyself rather unto godliness. And in the book of Galatians, in Galatians chapter 5, and in the verse um, uh, 23, um, we, we read uh, these words, Galatians 5 and 23, And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. Sorry, it's Galatians 5 and verse 24. You see, a life of self-denial is different from a life of asceticism. And a life of self-denial is essential for following the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to what Christ said. If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother, his wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. A life of self-denial is essential for following the Lord Jesus. But listen to me, there's a big difference. A life of self-denial sees the body as the temple of the Holy Ghost. And therefore you take care of the body and you glorify God in your body, what you put on and, 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 and what you put into the body and the way you live your life. A life of self-denial lives in subjection and submission to Jesus Christ as the true head. You're handing control of your life to Christ. That's what Jonathan Goforth did when he was 18 years of age. And that's why he didn't become a politician. And that's why he became a missionary and saw 38,000 souls come to Christ before his death on October the 7th in 1936. 
A life of self-denial still uses and enjoys the material things of the world. We can enjoy our car, a drive in the countryside. We can enjoy a hearty meal of steak or, or, or salmon or, or whatever. A life of self-denial is not trying to make himself gain acceptance by God. He sees himself in Christ. I'm accepted in the beloved. I have access to the Father. I'm not attempting to atone for my sins. Christ died for my sins, according to the Scriptures. I'm not attempting to find peace with God. I have peace with God, therefore being justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. A life of self-denial flows from a new heart. It's nothing to do with mere externals. A life of self-denial rejects the idea and the concept of the rules and commandments of man. He rejects self-made religion. He rejects a worship made up by false teachers or certain peoples themselves. Now we finish this morning with this. Here's the, the other part of the announcement. A fundamental faithful announcement. The Bible teaches that true holiness, salvation is achieved through identification with Christ alone. Colossians 2.20. Remember what the Apostle Paul says here as we wrap this up this morning. Colossians 2 and 20. Look again at the words. Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ. He's making an argument. When Christ died on the cross at Calvary, those in Christ died with him. Died to sin. Died to Satan. Died to the law, died to death, died to the grave, died to hell. They're no longer under Satan's dominion and control. They're no longer under the control of death or, or hell or the grave. Let me give you this illustration, young people, as we finish. We'll, we'll take a man from Africa, a colored man. And he's lived in Africa all his life. And he's been used in Africa, say it was Johannesburg, and I'm only making this up. He, he has a 6 p.m. curfew. Every night. So at 6 p.m. he must be in his house. And not out in the streets. Or he could be arrested and put in jail. He then moves to the United States of America. He's there in the first week. And he's out in a particular town. We'll say it's New York. And it comes 6 p.m. It's near 6. Oh please sir help me to get home. Where can I get a taxi? Where can I get a bus? I have to get to this place. I'm afraid of being arrested. And the man's saying. What on earth are you talking about? There's no such law here in the United States of America. You see, that man is factually free from that curfew because he's now a citizen of a different country. But he's not enjoying that. He's living in fear. And how many of God's people are living in fear because they're not focusing on Christ and remembering they died in him, buried with him, and they're risen with him and in him. How many want will worship? And they want this wisdom of men that all seems very impressive. You see, these false teachers, if I put it this way, were saying real Christians, they deny these things. No food, no steak, no salmon, no chips, dry coarse bread, water, one meal a week, uh, uh, no mattress to sleep on, uh, no, no car to drive in. Walk, don't wash, don't, don't, don't dress that way. You think of the religious monks and nuns. People look at them and think they're so religious, they're so holy. I, I could not be like them. But I want to tell you, ladies, holiness and a life of godliness can be washing the dishes at the sink or emptying the dishwasher or in the midst of a family squabble and changing of nappies and cleaning up a mess and doing daily work. 
I want to tell you that's real Bible believing Christianity because you're living in the world. You mightn't be off it, but you're living in it. You're, you're not trying to escape from it. Those that run to the convent, those that take vows of poverty and chastity and, and, and so on and so forth, that's not real Bible believing Christianity. Do you know that our founding father of the Whitfield College of the Bible, George Whitfield himself, it's named after him, for seven weeks before he was converted, abstained from certain foods, put patches on his clothes, he wore dirty shoes, he slept all night on boards, he quit the holy club that he enjoyed, he didn't eat, he was sick, he was in bed for seven weeks. All because he believed that suffering in his body would make him holy, would make him more piety, would help him to be serious about salvation. And he forgot that all he needed was Christ. He needed a respect for what God had made. He needed a true piety, not a sham piety. A true holiness that lifts up and lives in Christ and rejoices in the freedom that God has, the free grace of God. And glory to God, he came to that understanding. Do you have that understanding now? Do you know Christ? Are you in him? Him to know is life eternal. This is what the Bible teaches. And I pray that we'll get our sight in that and rejoice in God's goodness.